Welcome, everybody, to Goodfellows, um, a show where we talk about economics, politics, national security, and uh, matters of current concern. Uh, I'd like to welcome my fellow Goodfellows, uh, Neil Ferguson, historian, H.R. McMaster, general and all-around optimist. I'm John Cochran, an economist. Our normal host, Bill Whalen, is out this week. So in the, th- in the theory of putting the inmates in charge of the asylum, they made me moderator. <laughs> and we're a special welcome to our friend Glenn Lowry, a professor of economics at Brown and also distinguished visiting fellow at the, the Hoover Institution. Welcome, Glenn. Uh, Thank let's you, have John. some fun. Yeah. Um, as much of a theme as we could put together is that uh, there's so much in the week's news we have to talk about, uh, but it also seems a little bit of a reprise of that 70s show. <laughs> Are we going down the same path as we went before, maybe this time with farce? Uh, so let's lead it off with what seems to be in the news, and I'll, I'll lead off with Glenn. Uh, we had the, the Rittenhouse verdict, uh, the week in wokeism, uh, and, and much other news in that direction. I, I won't even bother with a question. Three, two, one. Glenn, go. <laughs> well, uh, chickens come home to roost, or the uh, tale continues. The summer of 2020, uh, the uh, shooting of Jacob Blake in uh, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, the uh, rioting and protesting that occurred after that Rittenhouse Uh, The young man from Illinois who uh, shot uh, dead, too, and wounded seriously a third uh, in the altercation there. Uh, His trial, um, the press on trial for uh, misreporting and uh, a biased and tendentious rendering of the facts, uh, the risk of civil disturbance if the verdict didn't come out right in the trial, um, all of this. I mean, I don't know where to begin, to be honest with you, uh, John. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that mobs gather around courthouses in this country, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, uh, edged on by uh, 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 unscrupulous politicians, um, and that uh, people of the sort that Jacob Blake would appear to have been uh, can can become heroic figures and, and symbols of movements of social justice. Um, I, I'm struck by that, uh, but um, I don't know. I, I want to know what you guys think. Actually, this is all I do. All I do all day long is talk about this kind of stuff. Um, I'm the guy who has to report that the country has gone mad if you're going to celebrate the likes of Jacob Blake. And if you think that what happened to him, given all the facts, thorough investigation uh, by uh, responsible parties, uh, was was an event of his own making. Uh I I could go into the details uh, and that uh, a city should burn uh, because of uh, that event that uh, politicians should uh, uh, equivocate uh, in in their uh, uh, defense of of the institutions of civil order. I'm I'm, I'm struck by where we've gotten to here in this country, and I'm, I'm actually very alarmed by it. Well, there are, as you mentioned, I I probably shouldn't have let it so open because there's a hundred interesting issues to follow here. The city's falling apart, the police, uh, criminal trials, the rights of defendants, um, you know, even the president of the United States weighing in on how trials should come out uh, without looking at the evidence. Um, And the the, uh, the, the fact I've noticed, um, so I listened before this, I listened to NPR's coverage uh, which featured uh, Ibrahim Xkendi, uh, your friend, who painted the trial itself, not not the Blake murder, but the trial itself as as evidence of um, uh, white supremacists wandering around the country, uh, which strikes me as as the thing one of the many things to notice about this this sort of paranoid conspiracy theory on the left that there are uh, there are groups of white supremacists running around trying to take over our democracy. I like the fact that one of the British newspapers uh, ran as a headline that the victims, uh, the people who were shot, were black, uh, which tells you all you need to know about the quality of of some journalism these days. David French wrote an excellent piece on this subject, which aligned with my view so perfectly that I don't need to say any more than read the piece. His two points were justice was done, uh, the, the verdict was the right one. Uh, from the vantage point of of the law, 
but that uh, Carl Rittenhouse is, is no hero. And I, I apply the, the simple test. Uh, did he behave in a way that I wanted uh, one of my sons to behave? And the answer is no, because he behaved in a foolish and, and reckless fashion. To make him a hero seems to me a grave mistake. He's as poor a hero for the right as, as Jacob Blake is for the left. Uh, you're technically, uh, technically, yes, it was self-defense, but what the hell are you doing grabbing a gun, going out and looking for trouble? Agreed. I would just add, and I know we'll probably talk more about this, but you know, the, the real indictment is of, is of the media, I think. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I'm a big Margaret Brennan and, and Face the Nation fan. I think they do a pretty good job relative to other Sunday shows. But the coverage last Sunday was so skewed and, and misleading uh, in connection with this being an issue fundamentally of, of race rather than one of poor judgment. And, and clearly, given the implication, if one had not known anything else about this case, you would have thought that those who, who Rittenhouse shot were, were black and this was a racial issue. So I, I think that you know what, what really I'm concerned about is if we're ever going to help bring the country back together, right, reverse some of this polarization that we've seen, we at least need kind of a common set of facts. And, and you think we could rely on our mainstream media to provide those, especially when they're not available, certainly in the pseudo media or in social media. So I'm, I'm really worried about the fourth estate. And, and I wonder if, if any of the leaders within the fourth estate recognize the need for some very serious reforms. Of course, our friend Barry Weiss has, has written eloquently about this and is providing an alternative on Substack. Glenn, you, you know you're, the media that you're producing and and the and the, the you know the, the clear you know concise assessment of what's going on today, I think, is immensely important. I think more and more Americans are just going to have to migrate away from mainstream media media and go to some of these alternatives. Glenn, what do you what's your view of the media? Is it redeemable? Uh, and, and what do you think could be done uh, to help reform the fourth estate? Um, I have no idea how to reform the media. I, <laughs> I uh, don't think that the law is going to be an effective instrument, except insofar as people bring uh, libel or slander actions against uh, news organizations that misrepresent them in an egregious way. Um, I wanted to say, though, that I, I think in a way it wasn't directly a racial incident, even though in the Rittenhouse shooting case, all of the parties, both he and the uh, uh, people who were shot were white, in that, of course, the whole scene was in the aftermath of the rioting and looting and arson and disorder and violence that erupted after the Jacob Blake shooting. It was a piece with other incidents that had occurred in other cities around the country during that long, hot summer of 2020 after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And the debate before the country about how are we to respond to this lawlessness with Trump running for re-election, sitting in the White House, using the incidents as a platform for his own uh, political expression, and with Biden and Harris running against him, again, using these incidents as a platform for their own political aspiration, sort of the question was drawn and people had to decide what side they were on, uh, so that defense of Rittenhouse indirectly becomes an attack on Black Lives Matter and a characterization of the protest as, uh, as unacceptable or violent, um, and a, uh, a siding with the prosecution in the Rittenhouse case becomes a way of expressing solidarity with uh, Black Lives Matter and so on. And this causes me great despair because as everybody knows who's listening to this, uh, uh, to this broadcast, uh, on Sunday the 21st, uh, a black man, Daryl Brooks, who has been apprehended driving a vehicle into a Christmas Day parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is in suburban Milwaukee, killing five people and injuring dozens. Now, uh, this will be investigated. I don't know exactly what all of the, the causes and uh, so forth might have been, but I do know that the person in custody is Black. I also know that it's completely irrelevant that the person in custody is Black. I also know that the kids who were run over by this guy were white. And I know that it's completely irrelevant that they were white. And I think we're in a hell of a terrible place in this country if every time a Black criminal drives a vehicle and murders white people, we talk about it in the way that I'm talking about it right now. And yet that's the world that's being invited. 
by these uh, uh, opportunistic politicians and irresponsible journalists who every time a cop does something that's questionable to a citizen, want to tell me about a white cop and a black citizen. We don't need that. It's not necessary. It's gratuitous. And <clears throat> there's an arguable case that the cops uh, shoot white people more than they often. I mean, there is a serious issue of police reform. Uh, police do um, harass black people more than they should, but that isn't necessarily a wave of, uh, of murder and white supremacy. It's a problem of too much policing. You had a beautiful essay on all these uh, questions, which I want to uh, I, I want to turn to or encourage you to uh, to, to talk about uh, both on what actually happened last summer and on uh, the troubles of police and the, and the black community and uh, in some sense what if we actually care about uh, black advancements, black neighborhoods, black communities, uh, how this particular narrative is is counterproductive at best. Yeah. Um... Uh, the first point I wanted to make is that we need to keep the killing by police of black citizens in perspective. And the idea that there's open season on black people, this is what uh, Benjamin Crump, the lawyer, calls his book open season. Uh, the police are going around killing black people en masse. Or the idea, as Al Sharpton would have it, uh, that America has its knee on the neck of black folks and it needs to take its knee off. The suggestion that um, as an African-American, I have to worry about my physical safety if I step from my door because rogue cops are there who might uh, set upon me. Uh, the kind of thing that millionaire uh, Black celebrities like LeBron James uh, talk about all the time, uh, that it's, well, a lie, that it's a false characterization of the objective circumstance, that we're a country of 300 plus million people, that there are tens of thousands of arrests that take place every day, that in every one of these cases, nearly every one of them, that you go down the list, uh, with a few exceptions, you have people uh, in open, violent conflict with the police provoking actions uh, that lead to their own, uh, to either demise or to their own injury, as in the case of Jacob Blake. Um, and, and that uh, the politicization of this thing, the racial politicization of policing, is objectively contrary to the interests of rank and file black people who can't afford to purchase the security for themselves by moving out of neighborhoods in which there's a lot of crime that's taking place. They need the cops. Of course, the cops are not perfect. Obviously, policing has to be regulated. Uh, and sure, they step a file and they should be held accountable for what they do. But the uh, way in which this issue has been seized upon as a um, uh, device for uh, undermining the credibility and the effectiveness and legitimacy of policing across the board is uh, is deeply disturbing and very much very very wrong-headed. It's me, contrary to the interests of Black people. Let I would me argue. ask you. So, la in some sense, this is last summer's story was riots, which we can take our views on. And, and going back and looking at the videos is is a little bit shocking as a memory of what actually happened. It's left in its wake uh, a bunch of devastation. This summer's story seems to be rampant lawlessness. Uh, groups of organized uh, looters going out and emptying out stores, the emptying out of cities. Um, where, where do you th see things uh, in the current situation? Uh, I, I have a, a correspondent I, I, whom I respect is a man named Clifton Roscoe, and I, I published some, some of his stuff at my newsletter, at my Substack newsletter sometime, but he, he calls it uh, the big sort. Um, he, he's quoting somebody who uh, you guys probably know. I can't name the book, but the the fact that uh, people are moving, pe people can vote with their feet, people can isolate themselves from these uh, from these uh, adverse uh, developments in the cities. Uh, so uh, I, I think there's a lot of that. I mean, <laughs> I can't believe that many many decent moderate people they will be white or whatever looking at what's actually going on in St. Louis, in Baltimore, in Chicago, and like places, are not saying to themselves, I'm not going to have a darn thing to do with this. Uh, I'm not going to open up a business on the corner. I'm not going to invest in property there. I'm not, I don't want my children any place near what's going on. I, I can't help but think that they're thinking that. And calling them racist, wagging our fingers in their faces, 
that's not going to be a particularly effective persuasive strategy to get them to buy into the kind of cooperative political, economic, social that we need in order to stabilize the cities and so forth. So, HR Neil, I've been asking too many questions. When are you guys asking a question? Well, <laughs> let me qualify something that you said a moment ago, John. First, if one looks back on last year and looks at the data, there was a lot of nonviolent protest. Not all the protests yes. were violent. Uh, there, there were about a half of the protests where there were reports of violence. Whether those reports were accurate is another matter. That's important. Secondly, when we talk about a wave of crime, I think we have to be precise. There has been a big increase in homicide that dates from those protests and has continued into this year in multiple cities. There are some cities which also have a broader problem of crime, such as San Francisco, but that's because the local authorities have essentially legalized shoplifting so that it is possible to engage in low-level crime with basically no penalty. But I think the broader national problem is this jump in, in homicide numbers, which seems to be quite widespread as far as I can tell from the recent data. And this is interesting if we take a step back. And I always like to do that because I don't want to get too bogged down in one case. If we take a step back, it's very interesting that the United States had this increase in homicide because it hasn't happened in other countries in the course of the pandemic. Uh, in fact, in most countries, one effect of lockdowns was to reduce crime. Uh, it's much harder to commit a crime if everybody is actually supposed to be at home. So the U.S. is an outlier in this respect. Historically, we're still way below the peaks of homicide in the very violent times, 70s, 80s, 90s. But this big increase is, is a very interesting and unusual trend. And I think it has a big political consequence. It's one of the things that I think should really worry Democrats as they look ahead to next year, because if they are associated, as they became last year, with defund the police, and the demoralization of the police uh, is closely linked to this increase in homicide, then I think it's going to be very, very hard for them to lose that association with, uh, with being on the wrong side of the law and order issue. It's, it's been a chronic problem of social democratic parties, but especially of the Democratic Party in the United States. And I think Republicans should be able to capitalize on this. And that's one reason why people have made so much, I think, of the Kyle Rittenhouse case, because it's really an opportunity to make this, like everything else in the country, a political issue, even although it's essentially a, a case in law. Neil, isn't, isn't a lot of the homicide in the U.S. relative to other countries, the fact that our cities are run by gangs. Uh, I, I don't think other countries have quite the gang culture or issues that we have. Well, there are gangs. I grew up in a city, Glasgow, which was notorious for its gangs, but they didn't have guns. Violence is much harder to do. Lethal violence is harder to do if all you've got are knives and, uh, and even less sophisticated weapons. The thing that differentiates the US from most Western countries and makes it like a Latin American country, makes it more like Brazil, is just there are lots and lots of firearms. But we also, I wouldn't discount the shoplifting. So you drive down San Francisco and, and store after store is boarded up. And Glenn and I grew up in, in the Chicago of the 1970s where store after store is boarded up. If you don't have any retail, you don't have any community, you don't have any jobs, you have more crime. Uh, and that's just kind of, and people move out because there's there's no amenities. That, that seems to be, uh, I think there's still plenty of reason to worry about cities, even though rich people can pack up and move out to the suburbs if they like it. Are, are we at peak woke? Uh, you know, also in the news was the Virginia governor's race uh, in academia. Uh, finally, people stood up on the Dorian Abbott affair. Uh, you guys are both uh, starting this wonderful, interesting new University of Austin. Uh, do, are we seeing some light at the end of the tunnel at, in, in the uh, sort of the Maoist wokeism uh, uh, thread? Well, let me draw a distinction right away. I, I'm one of the founders and, and Glenn is uh, an advisor, so he bears much less responsibility for anything that we may uh, do uh, right or wrong. I think the answer to your question is no, we're not at peak woke. Otherwise, we wouldn't really need to do this. The climate in universities across the nation, and I think beyond the United States, has become really quite shockingly illiberal in recent years. I would say this has been a phenomenon, especially of the last five years. This is well documented by 
surveys by institutions like Heterodox Academy, 62% of students feel they can't speak their mind on campus uh, nationwide. That doesn't seem like a healthy state of affairs. And I think all of us who uh, spend time on campuses, as we do as Hoover Fellows, know that this is a, a very fraught time in academia. Indeed, it's clear from uh, what universities say about themselves that they know there's a problem. People feel like they're walking on eggshells. And, uh, and academics are, are losing their jobs or being driven to resign by the kind of uh, policies that are pursued often by bureaucrats rather than their fellow academics. So we felt, a group of us felt uh, earlier this year, that it was time to do something to create a new institution to model academic freedom, to show that it's possible to have real academic freedom where people can say silly things in the pursuit of understanding them better. Uh, and that by doing this, we do two things. First of all, we create a, a refuge for those academics like Peter Bogosian who are being run off uh, their campuses. Peter was forced to resign by Portland State the other day after a sustained campaign against him because he dared to point out that bogus uh, academic journals were publishing bogus articles. Uh, in my view, he's one of the heroes of our time. So we needed to create a place uh, for people like him or Kathleen Stock, who was driven off the campus at Sussex University in England because of her views on the difference between men and women, uh, in the same way that the New School in the 1930s was a place that refugees from a different kind of illiberalism could come. But the other, I think, broader goal is to just show uh, the established university how, it, it, how it's done. And if we can raise the standards of academic freedom and attract students who want to go to universities where they can speak their minds, then maybe, just maybe, we can achieve peak wokeism, but it's not going to happen by itself. This is not a pendulum that just swings back by itself. That is why ultimately I felt I had to get involved in creating a new institution. So I think Glenn and I, as economists, will always cheer that uh, competition is the answer to all problems. If the institutions of civil society are taken over by the wokes, then create no institutions. But here's where my worry is. Uh, everybody hates competition. <laughs> And, and the woke revolution is starting to discover it hates democracy, uh, which is the form of political competition. Uh, so certainly in your, won't they pull out all the stops to try to stop you? Uh, for You have to compete against federal subsidies. You have to somehow get accredited. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you have to get people to hire your students. Uh, you have a hard road ahead of you on, on the forces that want to shut you down. Well, I don't suppose the Renaissance was easy either. I mean, in the end, <laughs> ask Galileo. Uh, <laughs> he said modestly. <laughs> established institutions, uh, particularly in higher education, have a centuries-long history of, of resisting change uh, and trying to impose orthodoxy. So nobody uh, went into this with any illusions. I remember saying to my fellow founders, "We will get an astonishing amount of negative press." the minute we reveal that we're doing this. Uh, and I've seen this movie before because I was involved in an attempt to create a new university in London uh, some years ago. Anthony Grayling uh, dreamt up the idea of a new college of the humanities that would be a kind of Oxbridge-style institution in London. And from the very word go, uh, the, the press went after him and went after the idea because they know they can kill these things in the cradle. The defenders of the status quo know that if they can do enough reputational damage in the first inning, then the institution won't be able to attract faculty and above all, it won't be able to attract students. This time is different though. In, in the week after we said we were gonna do this, we had uh, more than 3000 emails from professors asking when they could apply for jobs at the University of Austin, and more than 5,000 emails from students asking when they could apply to come and study at the University of Austin. I think that things have really changed a lot in the last few years. Uh, you alluded to the, the Virginia gubernatorial election. The, the pandemic revealed to people what their kids were studying, not only in college, but in high school, and they did not like what they were overhearing on Zoom. 
And this means that there's a new mood in the country, a, a realization that something has gone badly wrong uh, at many universities, at maybe most universities, and that there needs to be some change of, of, of mood, change of direction. That's what we're trying to achieve. Of course, we can't compete with Stanford or Harvard or Yale uh, in the early uh, years, but ultimately, all of these institutions had to start somewhere. Even Oxford was once upon a time a tiny institution on the banks of the River Thames. No university starts, uh, as it were, as an Ivy League uh, superstar institution. This is a startup. And although we've had negative press, you know what's really struck me? I don't know if you noticed this, Glenn. The quality of arguments against our doing this is amazingly low. I have our name really calling. I've rarely read such junk as the critiques. And let's face it, who really credibly can argue against an institution whose sole function is to model academic freedom? I mean, good luck making the case against academic freedom. But of course, the usual spear is, oh, this is just a vast right-wing conspiracy. It's just a conservative institution, despite the fact that our advisors are clearly a bipartisan group. So I think the arguments against it have been lame. In fact, I saw I saw a couple of pieces that if they'd been undergraduate essays, I would have given an F. Well, except we don't give grades anymore, Neil. Uh, so well, I want to think- One thing we'll certainly be doing at the University of Austin. <laughs> and looking at Let me just say one thing, Jen, uh, just very briefly, because we are economists. There used to be a field called industrial organization. I actually published some papers early in my career you where you write down models and you try to think about competition. And you think about barriers to entry and you think about, you know, intangible assets and things of this kind. And, uh, you know, reputation, you know, how do you get to be a Harvard or a Princeton? You know, that's a that's a tough one. That's a that's a really tough one. And there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of junctures. This accreditation uh, challenge is a is a real challenge and it's very politicized. But I'm on board. I'm happy to be an advisor. I, I, I'm uh, encouraged by uh, Neil's uh, enthusiasm. Uh, and, and, and his passion. Uh, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that the move that we're making, uh, institutional innovation to try to create something that's free from all of the corruption and the, and the degradation is in a way also a kind of signal. I, I, and you see that in some of the, of the critiques. I agree that they haven't been of particularly high quality, but, the, but what I've been catching a, a lot is who is against the left in, in, in the culture wars. Uh, it is Trump type people. You guys making a move against the left in the university culture wars are giving aid and comfort to that strand in American politics. And then they go, they go for your, you know, they, it's ad hominem, it, it, which I regret to say is perhaps why some of the very distinguished uh, original advisors of the uh, effort have uh, have stepped away because they're worried that uh, they'll be tainted, even though it's a uh, uh, unwarranted uh, uh, by this kind of reputational blowback. Glenn, and this is this is an area where I think deserves some more work. Right? Is this effort to co-opt the right or the conservative movement? you know, by the, the Trump movement, right? The Tucker Carlson's of the world, who I think are guilty of an equal and opposite irrational reaction to the far left. And it is diminishing, I think, the right's ability to, to provide a corrective in sort of a dialectic that would help, help Americans come to some sort of a reasonable synthesis. You know, and I, which I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Neil's thoughts and John's thoughts about what's happening on the right uh, with the co-option of those who would be a rational voice against the left. But instead, uh, what we hear is, is you know, a, a, a reaction that actually adds to this, I think, centripetal forces, right? These centripetal forces that are pulling us apart from one another. Well, before we get to that, HR, let me make one point, which is really important. And that is that politics has no real place in the lecture room, in the classroom, in my view. And this, this was a point Max Weber, the great German sociologist, made many, many years ago uh, in a very important uh, lecture. Uh, and, and Weber's argument was that the politics is not something that you should really uh, be doing in the classroom. Of course, you can study politics, but it's not the role of a professor to exploit the, the power and influence of the lectern to indoctrinate. Uh, in fact, it shouldn't be possible for somebody to tell from what a professor says what his or her politics actually 
is. And that, that's a really important principle for me. I've always tried to make sure that when I'm in the classroom, I'm not wearing my polemicist's hat. I'm wearing a different hat. So whatever else the University of Austin is, it's not a conservative institution, nor is it a liberal institution. It is an institution, and we've said this again and again, that pursues truth and believes that academic freedom, freedom of speech, those things are indispensable for the successful pursuit of truth. I was asked, will we have students study critical race theory? And my answer was yes. They should be able to study whatever is relevant to their, their pursuit of truth. Uh, what we won't have is people indoctrinating students with their ideology. That, that I'm against. Well, I think the message that, to undergraduates that sells well is that, hey, if anybody asks you to adhere to any orthodoxy, reject that, right? And make your own choices, your own decisions, read widely, question you know, anything that you hear uh, and, uh, and, and suspend judgment for a while until you've mastered a particular topic. So I, I, think, that, I think that that does well uh, at Stanford and elsewhere, is, is if we, it, especially amongst students who feel as if they've been fed an orthodoxy and have been asked to adhere to it. Okay, I'm gonna take on my moderator's hat. I wanna pivot. Uh, yes. HR has gotten off too easy. We got two more topics to talk about today. I wanna to talk about uh, foreign affairs, what's going on in the last couple of weeks. And then I wanna pivot back to economics where Neil has uh, recently completely outdone every economist I've ever seen on analyzing the recent situation. So he'll get to do that. But let's, let's turn to foreign policy and wake up now, HR. Uh, <laughs> I've seen a lot going on. And also uh, to, to, with a, to Glenn, a lot that has an economic component to it. One, of course, uh, Russian troops are massing on the Ukraine border. Maybe the good fellows picked the wrong war to worry about over the last couple of months. Uh, the Biden administration is talking about forswearing first new use of nuclear weapons. Uh, China is merving, we're not. Um, so the whole issue of mutual assured destruction and how does that work, that, that whole game theory is back in the news. And uh, I gather our, our Navy can't sail close enough to China that the planes do any good because we forgot to uh, build long enough range planes to do that. Uh, finally, a great piece of news I heard this morning, from my point of view, the US ran joint military exercises with Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. Uh, Israel and the Arabs together running military exercises. Okay, pick and choose, HR, uh, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, you know the war—the war, the war in, in Ukraine never stopped, right? It's been—it's been going on since 2014. We haven't just haven't been paying attention to it. And what's changed, I think, are a number of things. I think Putin, like Xi Jinping, senses a degree of weakness in the West generally and in the United States specifically. He's also faced with, you know, with the stagnant economy and a really horrible response to COVID and people just getting tired of Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, he's extended his rule till 2036. And I think it's these domestic pressures, which has, I think, impelled him toward maybe creating another or accelerating you know, the actions he's taken before and creating another international crisis. Combine really the massing of troops uh, around the borders of Ukraine in a way that really is menacing in, in a real way. I mean, um, and 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 I think I think the chances are significant of a renewed offensive in the Donbas region. But also look at what he's done in Belarus by weaponizing migrants against Poland, and of course you know, the using energy for course of purposes against Europe. So I think he just feels as if the West is weak. And then he also has domestic uh, problems that he can maybe uh, best solve by really uh, through jingoistic nationalism and creating some kind of a, uh, you know, some kind of international crisis. So what should we be doing about it? Well, I think we have to we have to deter him. We have to make sure that he knows that we would impose costs on him far beyond those he would factor in at the outset of any kind of aggression against Ukraine, for example. Uh, I think we have to demonstrate more solidarity with Ukraine, us and the Europeans in particular. Uh, and we have to deploy capabilities in the region such that he knows his efforts to intimidate not only Ukraine, but others like you know, like Bulgaria and Romania, by trying to turn you know the Black Sea into a Russian lake, that that's not going to work. And you alluded to you know the the Chinese capabilities; they're very similar to the Russian capabilities. What they've done really since the '90s, but accelerating in the 2000s, is develop a range of asymmetric capabilities, which are designed to limit our freedom of, of movement and action along the Eurasian rimland. And maybe I'll ask uh, Neil to comment about this, but I think the situation that we're facing today is quite analogous to the situation that Great Britain faced 
in in the uh, early early 1900s. And that you know, with McKinder and Spikeman, these geostrategic theorists said we should never allow a hostile power to dominate the world island of the Eurasian landmass. And I think that's what we're seeing China and Russia attempting to do, uh, to t- attempting to create exclusionary areas of primacy, uh, and then to use this military intimidation, whether it's a buildup of nuclear forces you mentioned with China or menacing deployments of conventional forces, to essentially send the message of who's your daddy. Right to 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 weaker states on you know on that on the rimland, uh, and to create positions of geostrategic advantage. They're also competing further afield than the Eurasian landmass, and we could talk more about the Middle East and so forth as a as as a, and, or South Asia as an arena of competition. But I think we're in the midst of an intensifying geostrategic competition, and what you're seeing is Russia really accelerating what was already a sustained campaign associated with Russian new generation warfare. And you see, you see uh, China taking a, a series of aggressive actions as well, vis-a-vis Taiwan and in the South China Sea or in the Himalayan frontier. So I have a way of, of linking what we're saying now to what we were saying before. And it's kind of a question for, for Glenn. And the question is, who cares? So clearly, HR is right. The, the combination of the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation is a very dangerous one for just about any relatively weak country within range of them. And it's a very dangerous one for the United States because it implies a challenge to American primacy. The United States, I think, is more like Britain between the wars in the sense that it is pretty thinly spread, now has a great burden of debt weighing it down, which is going to squeeze the defense budget, and yet could face simultaneous challenges uh, over Taiwan, over Ukraine, and maybe also in the Persian Gulf. Uh, if even two of those happen simultaneously, as you know, HR, be really tough. But my question for Glenn is who cares? In other words, does the American public preoccupied as it is with the Kyle Rittenhouse case, with wokeism, does the American public actually pay much attention if we wake up to the amphibious invasion of Taiwan or we wake up to hear that the Russians have launched a major offensive aiming to annex Ukraine entirely to the Russian Federation. I, I still can't get a handle on, maybe it's because I'm an immigrant, what do I know? But I just can't get a handle on whether Americans would really care if, if these bad scenarios played out. What do you think, Glenn? I guess it's not so much. My guess is they're more worried about the price of gasoline or whatever. Um, my guess is we should care. Uh, I'm no expert in the field, but my sense of the matter is that uh, what starts as a little bit of slippage ends up at the end of the day being something much, much more serious. Uh, I do have some sympathy for those who say, why are we uh, uh, taking on ourselves the burden of uh, uh, being the world's policeman and so on? Um, This is above my pay grade as far as diplomacy is concerned about how you work out the various alliances to share the burdens and so on. But uh, I would think that indifference to uh, a, a kind of uh, inward focus that leaves one not paying much attention to what's happening uh, with Russia and China uh, will, in the fullness of time, be a, a position that one could live to regret. Right. I, I, De- I defunding the global police. I mean, in a funny kind of way, defund the global police became the policy under President Obama. (laughs) And it was continued by President Trump. Each of these presidents, despite their massive differences, basically agreed that we should reduce our involvement in the rest of the world. And this let me ask ask a question in return. I mean, do we have the confidence that is as a nation, the United States of America, our cultural institutions, our universities, people in the press and uh, likewise in the corporate sector and so on, the political leadership, do we have enough confidence in the uh, legitimacy and vitality and virtue of the American project that uh, we're willing to fight and die for? Glenn, that, that is the right word, I think, is confidence, right? And, you know, we were talking just before we started filming here about, you know, the 70s show, right? And I'm thinking about, you know, the Carter's malaise speech in which he never used the word malaise, but it came at the end of a toward the end of a, of a decade that involved the first resignation of an American president and the scandal associated with it. You know, humiliating withdrawal from Saigon after the assault, the Vietnamese communist assault on Saigon, stagflation, 
you know, multiple energy crises, and then the, the, that decade punctuated by an Iranian revolution and a 444-day-long hostage crisis in Iran. So, I mean, I, I do see the parallels here, and we did lack confidence. But, you know, I'm the optimist, Glenn. So I guess got to ask you, man, will you be optimistic? Are you optimistic with me that we do still have the capacity for self-correction and self-improvement and, and regaining our confidence as we did, I think, you know, in the, in the 1980s? What Glenn said was very deep. You have to have the belief that your society is a good and just society and, and deserves to prevail. And if you buy the woke narrative, then, you know, the Russians deserve to take over. And why should you fight and die for it? That's now that's not through, throughout America. That's a very that's a small fraction, which kind of didn't like us in the 1970s either. And I, I do think there is hope. Certainly, Americans don't pay much attention in, in the rumblings. But when we lose something big, they care. Uh, the defeat in Afghanistan was was people hated that. They hated the Iranian hostage crisis. They hated losing Vietnam. So one of the data points that has fascinated me in the last couple of weeks is a survey that the Chicago Council on Global Affairs published. And it showed that uh, 52% of Americans favor using US troops to defend if China were to invade Taiwan. Now that that I found quite surprising. I would have, if you'd asked me before to guess, it would be like maybe 20%. It's actually more than half of Americans. So I think one of the, the unnoticed shifts that happened in the last two years, partly because of the pandemic and the recognition that the pandemic emanated from China for a reason, sentiment towards China has unquestionably shifted. And it's bipartisan. Democrats may not be quite as ready to fight for Taiwan. They're a little bit less ready than Republicans. But this is broadly a shift that's happened across the political spectrum. And it may be something that the Chinese and the Russians are underestimating right now, because it's clear from what the Chinese say to themselves and occasionally in public that they think we're done and that we probably won't put up much of a fight if they do take a risk and uh, and send those uh, those amphibious landing craft uh, to the beaches of Taiwan. I mean, all of you guys, if, if Taiwan turns into a shooting war, it's going to be an economic catastrophe, uh, especially if we lose. Uh, what's certainly going to happen is there's going to be a blockade of all trade uh, around the Pacific Rim. Uh, the most natural thing for the U.S. to do is not to try to reinvade Taiwan, but to send out the Navy. And, and, and basically, so trade with China is over. Most trade in there is over. Uh, I, I can't only begin to think of, of how this is going to go. But this is this is going to be a pocketbook catastrophe. Plus, of course, the U.S. will have to have to spend a whole lot of money on stuff. Same thing if Europe turns into a shooting war uh, and all sorts of things blow up in the European economy. It, it's going to have immediate in, uh, impacts. Which and makes I, me want to want to ask, what do the Chinese have to gain from precipitating such an outcome? Isn't the Neil aren't all wars miscalculations? They think they can sneak it in, and we won't pay any attention. Well, and, that turns and, out this, and this is where you know? this is where I think the World War One analogy. I'll ask Neil to maybe comment on this. I'm thinking of a great essay that Margaret, Margaret Macmillan wrote called "The Rhyme of History" in uh, in 2014 on the 100th anniversary of World War One, and of course. You know all the you know the prominent intellectuals and economists and in Europe uh, prior to World War One thought war was impossible, right? Because it wasn't in anyone's interest. But of course, people fight for the same reasons Thucydides identified twenty five hundred years ago, right? Fear, honor, and interest. And I think it's really a sense of honor uh, and and fear of losing the Communist Party's grip on power that drives Xi Jinping. That's why I think. So many of his decisions are inexplicable, right? From an economic perspective, right? If he really wanted to grow the economy at the at the targeted rates, he would double down on the, the so-called private sector in China, which doesn't really exist. But but he wouldn't be doubling down on state-owned enterprises, for example. So it really, he wouldn't have you know maybe maybe uh, extended the party's repressive arm into Hong Kong. He wouldn't be. Uh, persecuting the, you know, the the executives in the tech sector, for for example, and make it even even less and less attractive for anybody to do business in China. So I, I really think that it, to Xi Jinping, it doesn't even enter into his calculus what the economic consequences are, and this is why I think that we ought to make clear to him, hey, you know, if you want access to the dollar economy, 
you know, and you invade Taiwan, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get access to the dollar economy. You're going to be cut off. I just want to applaud what you just said, because it's so wise. So much of our foreign policy thinking thinks of the other side as this complete, unitary, ready-to-go chess player. In fact, they've got huge internal problems. And if we only understood uh, their internal problems, we might be able to push things around a whole lot better than we do. Well, maybe to answer Glenn's question, let me quote a Chinese scholar uh, who spoke with a group of us uh, last week uh, at Hoover, who's who's visiting Stanford. Uh, and he said uh, that to understand Xi Jinping, you must not exaggerate his sophistication. You must recognize that his utility function is quite simple. Number one, personal power. Number two, the power of the Chinese Communist Party. And the reason that the Taiwan issue looms so large is actually very simple. Xi Jinping committed himself to bringing Taiwan under the control of Beijing as the capstone of his own career. That was why he persuaded uh, the leadership of the CCP to give him an extension uh, of power, essentially a lifelong uh, position as president. Everything hinges on this move uh, in his own mind because it's the key to his personal power. And in the minds of the CCP leadership, it's the key to their legitimacy as the economy inexorably slows, because there's nothing they can do to stop that. The demographics, the debt dynamics, the fact that the, that 29% or so of economic activity, which is in real estate, is basically no longer sustainable. They're going to a much slower growth rate over the next five or so years, and, and therefore nationalism is the key. Now, this is where HR's 1914 parallel does make some sense. Sure, completely different political setup, but there's no question that many governments in 1914 made the assumption that their domestic political situation would be improved by going to war and would be weakened if they did not go to war. Such was the power of nationalism. I think that is very much China today. And not everybody in China, even in the CCP, must be happy with uh, Xi Jinping making himself emperor for life. They had sort of a system. You get two terms and then power turns over. Uh, you know, People can afford to wait their turn rather than pull out the knives now. I can't imagine that everybody is secretly completely happy with this. Well, there was a book published earlier this year called The China Coup, which imagined uh, dissident elements at the top of the CCP overthrowing Xi Jinping in a time of economic and financial crisis. Uh, but I, I mean, this seems like wishful thinking to me. I, I, I'm not going to say it's a 0% probability, but it's got to be low. Well, Xi Jinping doesn't think this is a 0% probability for sure. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, I, you know, I am an economist. I have studied some game theory. I don't know much yeah. about international relations, but I do know that deterrence is a, is a fundamental thing. Why would you be talking about forswearing the first use? And if it needs to be said, I'm not for the first use. I'm not advocating the first use. I'm saying that looks like a card that I would want to have in my hand that the other guy didn't know whether I was going to play it or not in order to keep him from doing something stupid. Why would I, why would I give that card away? This is I one think you're absolutely job. right. You're absolutely right about that. And you know, I, I would just say if any viewers are super interested in this, if you look at the nuclear, nuclear posture review from 2018, it lays out a strong case for not forswearing uh, first use because what you really want is no use ever, right? That's what you really, really want. And, and um, you especially can imagine these days where you would have massive attacks, for example, on communications infrastructure that would maybe affect your ability to, to strike back from, you know, from a nuclear perspective. And, and therefore, if you, if you forswear, forswear first use, you might be opening yourself up to be very vulnerable for first use by by a hostile a hostile power like uh, you know like Russia or, or China. So let me chime, chime with Glenn here. So economist, there's this thing called the trembling hand equilibrium, which Glenn will recognize. The reason is mutual destruction makes no sense at all in game theory because uh, there's no reason if if they go send three nukes your way, there is no reason for the United States to murder tens of millions of Chinese or Russians, and a good chance we wouldn't do it. So you need to make sure there's just you're pretty rational, but you never know, guys, so don't do anything too dumb. <laughs> One of the odder things about the way nuclear strategy evolved during the Cold War was that while uh, there were some strategists who believed we were in some kind of mutual balance of terror, in truth, NATO doctrine became one of limited nuclear war. 
Uh, there were short-range tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. HR knows this better than anyone on this call. I used to have well. to pass the exam because we had nuclear eight-inch rounds, right? artillery rounds in our cavalry regiment. But this is one of the stranger and less well-understood features of the wow. Cold War, that we were ready to use those tactical nuclear weapons because we couldn't have stopped the Red Army with purely yeah. conventional forces. So it actually is highly relevant today, given that we have a new domain of warfare, cyber warfare. And HR, I'd love you to talk a little bit about deterrence and cyberspace, because my my working assumption for some years, based on arguments with Joe Nye at Harvard, is that there is no deterrence in cyberspace per se. In other words, you can't really deter people from engaging in cyber attacks unless you have the credible threat to retaliate in a non-cyber, potentially nuclear way. What are your thoughts on that? I, I agree completely, right? I mean, I, I think what you have to do for deterrence is deter in two ways fundamentally. Deterrence by denial, which is you're pers persuading your enemy that your enemy cannot accomplish his objectives through any form of attack, right? So you, you can do that with resilient systems, you know, layered defenses within cyberspace, but also, of course, you know, you can't have a defense in cyberspace without offensive cyber capabilities because you can't shoot down all the arrows. You have to be able to kill the archer in cyberspace. But then also we have to be able to deter by the threat of punitive action later. And that punitive action has to go outside of the cyber domain and enter into the physical domain. It may be, depending on the circumstances, appropriate use of military force, but it's also law enforcement and sanctions. And we do this routinely now, much better than we used to in terms of going after malicious cyber actors. The problem, the real problem is when you're facing a capable cyber actor that, that is, is not a nation state, and therefore it is more difficult to hold something of value to that actor at risk. And that's where I think we have to be very active at going after organizations who have these capabilities so that they can't attack our, our more vulnerable infrastructure. But, you know, I think it's, it's really two-pronged for us, right? Deterrence by denial, making our systems more resilient, and then being able to go after cyber actors, as you're mentioning, Neil, outside of cyberspace. Now, I'll tell you a very early example of this. I mean, this may not, I mean, this is not a very tactical level. But there, there were a number of cyber actors associated with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in, in our area of operation in Nineveh province. And we found that the, one of the most effective remedies to that was a 500-pound bomb uh, at, at, the, at the physical location of, of that cyber actor. So I, I think it's just one of many examples of how to use really capabilities outside of the cyber domain to deter or defeat cyber actors. Okay, I want to turn in our last couple of minutes because uh, we have, it turns out, uh, two economists here that are better than me. Uh, Neil turns out to be one of them. Uh, Neil wrote a, a, a great Bloomberg piece that I encourage you all to read about the current situation. And we got so much going on. We got these uh, massive bills going through Congress. We got inflation. We have a new Federal Reserve <coughs> chair and vice chair, it, it looks like. And we have the big puzzle of why people are not returning to work. Um, so maybe Neil can tee this off since you wrote it, but I want Glenn also to, to step up on, on what's going on here. Well, I'll keep it short. First, I'm, I'm, I'm not a better economist than you, John, but I've learned a lot from you since moving out here five years you ago. You wrote a better so essay than I can I, I, I owe you a debt if I'm understanding. And hey, I'm still expecting college credit from you guys on <laughs> economics. <laughs> you got to pass the final exam. I, <laughs> and and, and se secondly, very briefly, I mean, the, the puzzle of the economy at the moment is, is partly that the labor market is, is looks very tight, but there are like four or maybe you could even argue seven million uh, missing jobs uh, if, if you just imagine where we would be if there had not been a pandemic. And, and so I was asked, you know, can you resolve this conundrum? And I, my resolution of it was quite straightforward. I said... First of, first of all, this pandemic is over, and yet it's not over. It feels like it's over, but for a lot of people, it's not over. Uh, that is why they're holding back from returning into uh, employment. Maybe they're taking early retirement because they're in their mid-50s, and they're like, okay, I don't think I really want to go back to work after all. Uh, maybe they're just confined to home because their kids are still being sent home when anybody tests positive in a, in a school. So there's a, a definitely a labor supply constraint, which I think reflects the late pandemic phase uh, but the other thing that's going on, which dominates, in my view, is that the economy has been massively overstimulated on the fiscal and monetary side. And yeah, I dare to say it on a Goodfellas show, Larry Summers was right. Back in February, he said, uh, this stimulus is out of all proportion to the plausible output gap. If you do this, uh, fellow Democrats, you're going to have an inflation problem. Here we are. Latest inflation read is 6.2%. I'll say it again, 6.2% consumer price inflation. Summers was right. And that is why the economy looks 
looks a little weird at the moment. Last point, if you were uh, full of the joys of spring uh, back the earlier part of this year with uh, the economy rallying and uh, and wages looking buoyant, uh, you're in, you, you've had a rude awakening because inflation's gone up more than average earnings have. And so in real terms, labor compensation's down. The big winners of Joe Biden's policy for the middle class and working families turn out to be the super rich and the owners of all the assets that have gone up by much, much more and right. and than wages you- or prices. We do have to credit Summers not, because he also changed his mind. This was Mr. Secular Stagnation, more stimulus for 10 years. And he changed his mind. I, I've been an inflation hawk, but I've always an inflation hawk. So it's like, uh, you know, there's no news there. I think Larry yeah, Summers so, would say the two positions are consistent, that you can still believe in secular stagnation and think that they crazily overduced the uh, stimulus earlier this year. But Glenn. What you just said is we have stagflation. We're having inflation. But yet, even though 10 million job openings, 7 million unemployed, but still the total amount of people working and the size of the economy is, is well below where it should be now. Glenn. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that uh, how do you end uh, a pandemic? How do, how do you end the moral panic, if you'll allow me to put it that way, that surrounds the pandemic? Uh, and I mean, I want to say, let's call the whole thing off. Uh, there was a song to that effect. We, we need somebody to wave a banner and say, it's over. Maybe that's Dr. Fauci. Maybe if Dr. Fauci comes out and says, I was just kidding, it's okay. Uh, we can go back. Uh, I, so, so that's one thing. There's a lot of money floating around. Uh, I was just talking to Larry Kotlikoff, the economist at my podcast, and he's very, very concerned about the fiscal uh, insolvency long-term of the country and about the possibility of more inflation around the corner, given uh, the amount of money that's floating around. There's a lot of money floating around. We were even reciting the quantity theory equation, you know, PQ equals MV, you know, and he's talking about expectations of future inflation and that it stimulates the velocity of money, which feeds into current inflation and all that kind of stuff. So, but, uh, the Biden administration are determined, are they not to be Roosevelt 2.0 and to, to lay down some kind of uh, framework of social investments that uh, will endure in the history books as a, a you know, reenactment of, of, of uh, the, the welfare state? Uh, and uh, they, they intend to do it on a 50-50 Senate and before the clock runs out and the House flips the other way, uh, you know. Maybe get Carter 2.0. <laughs> uh, I certainly noticed what Neil knows. Our government printed up two and a half trillion dollars of money and sent people checks. It borrowed another two and a half trillion dollars of money and sent people checks. Milton Friedman called this a helicopter drop. We just tried it. <laughs> so that, that we're getting inflation is no surprise. What's amazing is the Fed, uh, whose job is supposed to be. What's the Fed supposed to do? What's the supply? Calibrate the demand. Notice if there's not enough supply for the demand. And they still have not noticed that, that this is a problem. I, I went back to read the November 3 meetings. They're still providing support and stimulating because they don't think the labor market's strong enough. John, you may have worried people by saying we have a new Fed chair. We actually have the old Fed chair who's getting a second term. And uh, <laughs> you, watch, you watch how Jay Powell flips from dove to hawk now that he's had that uh, confirmation that he's still got a job. I think he's going to be getting a phone call every, probably every two days from Ron Klain, who is, of course, our prime minister, uh, saying, hey, inflation's hurting us, us, Jay. The reason you got renewed was to sort this mess out. So my sense is that we're we're heading for a much more hawkish Fed now, uh, and that that we'll probably end up having to correct this problem with a rather painful slowdown. By the way, the other person who's vindicated, and Tyler Cowen, who's been a guest on this show, said it, is Milton Friedman. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what you were talking about with the other Larry, the great Larry Kotlikoff, Glenn. This is Friedman's world after all. And a major monetary policy mistake has been made. And it's pretty hard to unmake those mistakes if the expectations genie is out the bottle, which I think it is. <laughs> yeah, well, I was trained at MIT and we were taught that Uncle Milty had it all wrong. But uh, <laughs> that was 45 years ago. And, and I, I got a lot of respect for uh, for Milton Friedman and for uh, Robert Lucas and uh, for Tom Sargent and for a lo- number of other guys that we could name. John Cochran. Well, this is I'll, I'll put in the John Cochran. This isn't just about money. Um, in Milton Friedman's world, if the, if, the, if they had bought lots of treasuries, not increased the debt overall, and turned it into money, that would cause inflation. This was because they were also printing up treasuries. So the deep hard problem 
is that this is about way too much debt overall, whether treasury debt or overnight debt at the Federal Reserve. And that that's that the Federal Reserve alone cannot put that back in the bottle. But I'll second your, your view. Um, Powell is a very sophisticated guy, and I, I'm very impressed on how well he understands all the technical monetary policy stuff and very good at Washington. So he, he did what it takes to keep his job. And I think uh, once that's secure, uh, we may see some interesting policy. And we're leaving out the most important thing. What, what the Fed is about now is regulation. Is the Fed going to take on climate change, inequality, and racial justice, or is the Fed going to go back to worrying about inflation? Uh, that's that's the still unsettled. The Fed has expanded to this enormous do-everything agency, and we'll see just where that goes. Okay, I, I, I'm being told it's time to wrap up. This has got to be the wrap-up time. This, yes, it's the wrap-up time. So the wrap-up question, what's the best Thanksgiving food and what's the worst Thanksgiving food? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave, Dave, while you guys think about it. Of course, around the Fama Cochran House, we are planning lasagna with chicken cutlets, uh, the most traditional Italo-American Thanksgiving possible. <laughs> well, we immigrants really struggle with Thanksgiving. I mean, from a British perspective, it's just spoiling your appetite for Christmas. So I have never really got my head around Thanksgiving. I'm I'm bound to be confronted by Turkey, and I'm bound to feel in my heart of hearts, this is a month too soon. Wait already for Christmas turkey. Well, we're having we're having a fried turkey uh, for Thanksgiving centerpiece. Fortunately, we're not frying it ourselves. My lovely wife has ordered our fried turkey from her favorite dispensary in Texas. It arrived on uh, dry ice the other day, and I'm looking forward to it. The worst I could imagine is one of these puddings made from sweet potatoes with the melted marshmallows and the butter floating around in it. It almost gives me a heart attack thinking about it. It's your last uh, last. Hey, well, I, you know, I love Thanksgiving, man. How do you not love Thanksgiving? Come on, Neil. I mean, I'll give you a little bit more time as an American man. Before I'm working you get into on it. it. But, I know, you know I should. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, hey, I love I love turkey, man. If it's if it's a good you know moist turkey, and then but you know, I, I'll tell you, Glenn. My mom used to make this great sweet potato casserole. It was not too uh, sweet, and the marshmallows were very crispy on the top, which I liked. It was kind of a texture thing as well. So you know, I just got to defend the old sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top as right. a little bit. Well, Thanksgiving is also about giving thanks, and one of the many things I'm thankful for this year is the company of my good fellows and. The, the larger community of Goodfellows, Glenn, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, thank you. I'll be back soon. Thankful for I look forward to all it. of you. Hey, thankful for you guys. Good have to see you, HR. Thanks, Glenn. It's entirely mutual. For all the Goodfellows and for the Hoover Institution, uh, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.